All right, well, whew, this chapter here is probably the most important one as we approach our transition in our church uh, to a new pastor. Uh, verses 1 through 7 especially tells us the qualifications of a bishop. Then we get to verses 8 through 13 and we have the qualifications of a deacon. And then chapter 14 and 15 are tremendous verses on the local church, followed by, I think, verse 16, the greatest verse, in my opinion, on the deity of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible. It's just my opinion. But uh, So we're going to go through this now. You have received a, a chart, a, a supplementary chart, called the Office of a Bishop, and the qualifications there. And uh, I've also written out my notes. I got 15. I don't know how many are on the chart here. But um, I've had this chart in my uh, filing cabinet for about 20 years. I'd give credit where credit is due to whoever put it out, but I don't know. Um, so, but I want you to notice on your sheet here, verse 6, it says, Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 6, the devil. Verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. I want you to notice the devil. In verse 6, the devil. In verse 7, please understand the devil is after the bishops. He's after the pastors. He wants to condemn them in verse number uh, 6. That is, erase their, their good testimony and he wants to trap them in verse number 7. And so this is a very important office. There's no office in all of the Bible where God has given us such details about the vetting process uh, of a man who can be a bishop and a man who cannot be a bishop. Now the word bishop, pastor, elder, they're really interchangeable. We'll see that when we get to Titus down the road here. We're studying First, Second Timothy and Titus if you're new here on Wednesday nights. All these uh, chapters, all 13 chapters, this is the third one now, as we move into our transition this year uh, in leadership of this church, we certainly want to know what a bishop is, but a bishop, the word bishop, episcopae, is the Greek word, it means overseer. It's almost identical, almost synonymous with the word pastor, which means overseer or shepherd, a uh, uh Pastor and a shepherd are synonymous. For instance, in Psalm 23.1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Jeremiah 3.15, it says, And uh, the Lord will give you pastors according to mine heart, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The word pastors in Jeremiah 3.15 and the word shepherd in Psalm 23.1 Exact same Hebrew word, okay? A pastor is a shepherd. And so when you think of a shepherd like leading a flock of sheep and and uh, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, his rod and staff, they comfort me. We have all that, that, that uh, those symbols. Uh, there's a lot for pastors to learn about that. And, and the Lord said that people are sheep, uh, scattered without a shepherd and so he he loves people and he raises up human shepherds to work under Christ to help 
lead people uh, spiritually. And uh, this is a part of the will of God. Obviously, God wouldn't put all of these qualifications in verses 1 through 7 and then tell you to stay home and not be a part of a local church. Uh, the local church is part of the will of God for our lives, the perfect will of God. Um, the perfect will of God has a lot of things to it, which would include being a member of a local church and, and serving under and working under a pastor. So uh, the local church is an institution of God, and it is run by bishops or pastors, or as we'll see when we get to Titus, Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, the word elder and uh, bishop, uh, pastor are synonymous also. Those three words almost mean identically the same thing, elder, pastor, bishop. So we have 15 qualifications here. Uh, and we've got to go through this quick tonight or we'll just be, uh, uh, we'll be here all night. But this, this whole chapter is just packed full Every word is not a well, it's not a wasted word. I hate to say that about the Bible anywhere, but but uh, it, it's all. So let's get into it. Verse one. This is a true saying: If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So the word the, the bishop is an office in the local church. Uh, a man should desire that office, and then he should qualify himself. Verses two through seven. We need. Uh, people who say, I, I would like to do that. He desireth a good work. If you want to spend your life doing a good work, being a bishop is one way to do that. There's a lot of other ways too. But a, a, the, the person who holds the office of the bishop desires a good work. It's a good work. And uh, we need uh, more men, especially young men, to say, hey, that's, that's my desire through desire, a man having separated himself seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. There's some things that just begin as a desire, and God sees that desire, but then we've got to qualify ourselves. And uh, then, as we saw in chapter 1, we've got to be faithful. Uh, Paul said, the Lord counted me faithful, putting me in the, the ministry. So desire, qualification, and then being faithful. He that is faithful in that which is least shall also be faithful in that which is much. So don't wait around to do something big for God. Be faithful in that which is least. Do little things for God, and God is watching. Find out some way you can just be faithful doing little things for God. And a whole bunch of little things done for a long time amount to a big thing. It's a big life. And so... Uh, don't wait around, sitting around twiddling your thumbs, waiting for God to say, you know, I've been watching you twiddle your thumbs for 20 years. I think I'll use you uh, in leadership. No, no. Uh, he that is faithful in least, he, he wants to see the person, the man who's doing the least, the little things, faithfully. And then he'll be faithful in much too. Qualifications. Number one, blameless. Uh, that doesn't mean he's perfect, but he has an impeccable testimony and a very high standard that he lives above reproach. Number two, the husband of one wife. That means he's not divorced and remarried. There's a lot of controversy about that. Certainly it means he's not a polygamist. And I've, I've met missionaries who have 
reached men in their churches who are polygamists, and then God would, would be leading those men towards the ministry, and they had to choose one. <laughs> You've got to choose one and get rid of the rest. They say, well, that's what they did in Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, they, they had to choose one wife and get rid of the rest of them and take care of them. Uh, somehow, I mean, it's your responsibility, but, but you've got to be the husband of one wife. Vigilant means uh, uh, to be temperate in a, a military type of a way. Um, a, a bishop needs to be a vigilant person. He, he's, he's, he's on guard. He's a watchman. And so he needs to be temperate in a military type of way. Sober means sound of mind and senses. Uh, self-controlled, temperate. And uh, so he has emotional and mental stability. Uh, some men are not stable and, 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 and cannot be a bishop. Of good behavior. Uh, this phrase of good behavior means uh, well arranged, orderly. Uh, it's actually the word that describes the cosmos in the Bible and how God has the whole universe all orderly. It's not, you know, you can look up every day of my life and say, there's the Big Dipper. You know, the whole thing's orderly. And a bishop must be an orderly man of good behavior, given to hospitality. That means he's a blessing to guests, he's generous uh, to them, and uh, he is friendly towards those that uh, he meets and, and those that come into the church. He's welcoming to them, contrary to Diotrephes, who we know in Second Timothy drove everybody out of the church because he was in charge. No, no, given to hospitality, apt to teach. That means he must be skillful at teaching, which to me, from my experience, is harder than preaching. Teaching is explaining truth. Preaching is proclaiming truth. Anyone can proclaim truth. Uh, you know, you've got to be a soul winner. But then explaining that, boy, and you get into the nuts and bolts of this is how you do it, this is how you don't, this is what you can say, this is what you don't want to say. This is how you can approach me. You get the teaching to me is by far harder than preaching is. Apt to teach. We need more teaching in our pulpits. Not given to wine, that means he is a complete abstainer from alcohol. Not a striker. This means that he's not physical, he's not a fighter, he's not ready for blows. Uh, you know, he's not ready for fisticuffs. Uh, type of a thing, not a striker, not greedy of filthy lucre. He is not a hireling. Uh, Jesus talked about the hireling, that the hireling will leave the flock. And especially in the ministry, a hireling will leave the flock to find a church that will pay him more. Uh, but those that are in the ministry are not in it for filthy lucre. That's speaking about money. Uh, they are shepherds. They are shepherds. They are not hirelings. And they have to often be contented. And, and God provides. It's amazing how God provides for the faithful man in the ministry. You don't have to have any worry about it. God takes care of his servants. And so don't say, well, you know, I, I think about the ministry, but boy, I've got to have some financial security. <laughs> well, 
Well, as the world would say, good luck with that. The way this country's going, <laughs> I'm not sure if there is such a thing coming up in the future here as <coughs> financial security. The best financial security is to be in God's work and God's will and doing things God's ways, uh, knowing that he, he said, uh, you don't even have to worry. You don't have to worry where your clothes are going to come from or, or uh, where you're going to get your next meal. Uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What, what security that is. What security that is right there. You just serve me, and all things shall be added unto you. Patient. This word patient means, of course, he's mild, he's gentle, he's willing to wait. Uh, he's he's got to be patient toward all men and gentle towards all men, the Scripture says. He's got to know how to be patient with people, even people that others have given up on. And he's, he'll see people come and go and uh, sometimes disappear for some time and just has to be patient with them. Not a brawler. That means he is not. He is abstaining from fighting. He abstains from quarreling. He doesn't quarrel about questions and words. He's not a brawler, not covetous. This is number uh, thirteen, by my count. Uh, not covetous. Desire. He does not have a desire for the things of this world or what others own. He doesn't think I have to have what everybody else owns. He has a contented heart. He's satisfied with such things as he has. And he's not a hoarder. And uh, he does not uh, wish to keep up with the Joneses of the world. Well-ruled home and children. It tells us here in verse number Eight, a four and five, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And so his children are growing up. As they're still in the house, he's got to have an orderly house. Children need to be in subjection with all gravity. And he has to rule his own house well. Or how is he going to take care of the church of God? And uh, so this is one of many times where the word rule is used uh, in connection with the office of the bishop. And uh, so, I don't know about when they leave the house. That's uh, I wish you could control people then too. But I know that uh, poor Samuel talked about him it says, now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, that's money, took bribes, perverted judgment. Then all the elders of the children gathered themselves and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways, make now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. That's a sad story. And we see Samuel in the lower parts of the earth with his mantle. He never was able to pass his mantle on to anyone else. And uh, his children went astray after they were older. Uh, that is sad. 
God still used them. But as we have our homes and our children are growing up in our homes, they need to be in subjection uh, to their dad, the bishop, with all gravity, and he's got to have a rule of his own home. Number 15, well, no, that's ruleth. Uh, we just went over that. It means to superintend or preside over, be a guardian. Oh, no, that was 14. 15, not a novice. Not a novice. That word novice means one newly planted, a babe in Christ. Because if he is a novice and he somehow gets into the office of a bishop, the scripture warns that he will be tempted uh, to be proud. There's no place for pride in the ministry. The ministry is only for men who realize and understand they do not deserve that office. They're not fit for that office, never are. Uh, They should be humble about it. They should be very humbled uh, by having this. In any kind of leadership, that's the best kind of leadership, is when somebody is put into an office of leadership and they are humbled by it rather than proud. Because, boy, proud people become so ugly. They're such ugly people. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so the devil is after the bishop, and he wants to get him to be proud and think he's something. Then his ministry's over, because God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there's so many uh, verses against pride in the scriptures, it even cuts off a man's prayer life. He doesn't get his prayers answered anymore. If he's proud, and what good is that? What good is that when a man is in the office of a bishop? The two main things he's supposed to do all of his life is to labor in the Word of God and pray continually. Those are the two main things. There are a lot of other things. But what good is that? He can't pray if he's proud. Because God knows the proud are far off. Moreover, he must have a good report to them that are without. He's got to be a good testimony to the unsaved, the, the, the people that are without, verse 7. That means outside the body of Christ, the unsaved. He's got to have a good report in the, the community. Lest he fall into reproach, gives God a bad name, and the snare of the devil. And so... Uh, The bishop has to make sure that he's always protecting the name of God by his testimony uh, amongst the unsaved and all of his business dealings and with his neighbors and everybody else that he reaches or cross paths with uh, who are outside of the body of Christ. So there is a list of qualifications and this one here you can put in your notes too. You know, we don't want to walk around with this, you know, for the next few years, you know, looking at Chris. And, you know, what's this? What, what? You know, and I, I don't know. You know, I mean, if, if some guy's weak on one or two of the points or something, you know, I, 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 would, I would be patient with him as people have certainly been patient with me, and there's been some of those areas where I've said, boy, maybe, maybe i got a C in that area. <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, but uh, still, it's a very serious office that is not to be entered into lightly, and the congregation should be educated 
um, and uh, b- before you vote and say this is this is what the Bible says uh, about a bishop. Now we go into deacons, which we'll go through more quickly because we don't have them here. Now, what are deacons? Over in Acts chapter six, there's the story about the Grecian widows being neglected. Remember that in the daily ministration. And the Jewish widows were taken care of, and so there was partiality in the early church. Yes, the early church was not perfect. <laughs> problems, there's just problems in the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians, all the epistles, Revelation tells us all the churches were imperfect. So don't try to find a perfect church or a perfect pastor. They don't exist. So they had to fix the problem. They came to the apostles and they said, look, man, this isn't right. we got a bunch of... Gentile widows being neglected, Jewish widows being taken care of out of the Benevolence Alms Fund. This isn't right. And so they said, well, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, uh, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so thus was invented the Office of a servant of the church, which is what the deacon means. A deacon never, ever, ever anywhere in the Bible is supposed to run the church or run the pastor. Okay, there's not supposed to be some board of deacons that runs the pastor. There are so many churches all over this country that are closed down now because they were deacon-run churches that ran the pastor. The church is supposed to be a pastor-led church. The bishop we just read about, he's supposed to rule and take care of the house of God, not the deacons. They're supposed to take care of the congregation. The carnal needs of the congregation, groceries, distributing them, that type of a thing. So they chose seven men, and that was when the church had about 8,000 attenders. Because some people ask me, why don't we have deacons in our church? Well, we don't have 8,000 attenders. And I think we're doing all right taking care of the the needs of the people in the church, you know, I think. Um, And if there is somebody that we're blinded to or missing, tell me. Tell Pastor Chris, tell Pastor Garland, and say, hey, this person has a need. I don't know if you're aware of that. We'll try to see if we can help that person with the need. And uh, But some churches grew to be very large. And it became a strain on the bishops, taking them away from the ministry of the word and away from the ministry of continually being in prayer. And uh, they were just giving themselves to trying to help others. And the spiritual end of the church was suffering because of it. So they appointed men to take care of those congregational needs, and they were called deacons. They were called deacons. And so the deacons work on what we call the business end of the church. The pastor's on the ministry end. Uh, Not that deacons can't minister too. But if you'll notice, the two words are used to describe a church. Business, ministry. Business, ministry. The ministry is more important, and that's people. But the church can become a very big business. Uh, especially when, when funds start coming in, finances, you've got to have a lot of oversight on those things. And when you get up to supporting 150 missionaries, uh, like we do, um, that's a lot of work. You can ask Pastor Seth, 
or my wife, those two people will tell you how much work that is because she files all the letters, reads them all. And uh, Pastor Seth goes through every single letter and stays in touch. It's, it's, just, it's just an unbelievable uh, job. And uh, Pastor Seth has often, um, you've noticed, almost fulfilled the office of a deacon by, the, by his constant working among the congregation, helping people cut down trees, get lumber, move to their new property or house they just bought, or, or chop down weeds or whatever needs to be done. He's always doing that. But we don't have deacons, so let's just go through this quickly. I hope that made some sense. Likewise, must the deacons be grave? That means serious. Um, they're, they're serious-minded people. They're not comedians. Not double-tongued. Why? Because they work more in the community of believers than the pastors do. And so they can't be double-tongued. They can't be talking out of both sides of their mouth. Can't have a forked tongue. Uh, they got to watch their words as they're out there. Not given to much wine. Now, the uh, verse 3, the bishop's not given to wine at all. These, this is talking about alcoholic wine. If you wonder, how do you understand the word wine in the Bible? Just take it in the context. Take it in the context, okay? And uh, there's alcoholic wine, there's grape juice. People called grape juice unfermented wine up to the 1900s. It's only the last century that we've called it grape juice. So you've got to just take it in its context. Now, there were times when, when people drank alcoholic wine. You've got to understand if, if, you, if you want something that's great, Brother Andy Allen wrote a book called Jesus and Alcohol, a booklet. We have it out here on the way out. It's just an amazing study he did on that. And, and, and understand that the, the alcoholic content of wine in Bible days was so little compared to the alcoholic content of wine today. You would have to drink gallons and gallons of it to get drunk. Uh, but a lot of times that's what they had as a staple drink because they couldn't go to Walmart or Wegmans or Tops and get good drinks. The water was not safe to drink. And so there was times when they used drank alcoholic wine, but it was almost impossible to become drunk on it. Also, it was used as an antiseptic. It was mixed with water to kill the germs that were in the water because they didn't have the drinking supply that we have today. And I think Tom Stiles has a good uh, flyer in the back resource room there on alcohol too, and when alcohol was used as a painkiller, you know, my dad's, you know, we got hospice coming in. And, um, you know, they started giving him pain medicine today. And um, we do that. We do that. And I think that's Proverbs 30, verse 6. It says, give wine to a dying man and strong drink. And, and so you, you got to take this subject, and I don't mean to get on a rabbit trail here, but you got to take it in its context. And also in the day and age... Uh, in which people live. To me, wine, beer, alcohol of any kind is so associated with evil today that a believer in Christ in any office should abstain from it. 
Uh, and Paul said that that's how he would live. He said he wasn't going to drink any. Uh, but he did, as we'll see later, tell Timothy, look, you're, getting, you're having stomach problems. Maybe it was from the water he was drinking. You've got, you got to use some wine as an antiseptic. And uh, so you got to, with any subject, you've got to study all that the Bible says about it before you can come to a conclusion. My conclusion, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, is just abstain, because, or 1 Corinthians 8, I think it is, because it's a bad testimony. It's just a bad testimony. My wife and I have abstained from it from before we ever got married for 44 years. We have not touched a drop of alcohol, and we don't feel like we're missing anything. We don't feel like we're missing a thing. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Uh, so he's probably the deacons out there and he's helping people in the community and he's not trying to take money or bribe them or anything. Holding the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. He's, he is not ignorant of the Bible. He knows the Word of God. He's got to know the Word of God because he's working with the congregation, perhaps one-on-one more than, uh, say, the pastor's. And uh, he has to have a pure conscience as he explains the mystery of the faith. He's got to be living it himself, not being a hypocrite. We talked about those back in chapter 1 and verse 19 and 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were men of the faith, they had the faith, but they put aside a good conscience and they made shipwreck. And so there's a lot of guys that know the Bible, but then their behavior is contrary to the Bible and they get into sin and they're just shipwrecked and there's no, there's no putting together a shipwreck. We've got to have a good conscience to the end of our lives. To the end of our lives. And, and uh, especially as we minister the mystery of the faith amongst the people. Let these also first be proved, just like the bishop Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And so just as the bishop has to be proved first, being faithful in little things, so he can be entrusted with much, so the deacons must also be proved proved and also be found blameless, that is, having an impeccable testimony. Now the deacons' wives are described uh, for 1 verse 2. Whereas a pastor's wife isn't, she can do anything she wants. <laughs> Amen, she says. No, but it says, let the deacons be the husbands of one, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 11. For even so, their wives must be grave. The deacon's wife must be grave. She must be serious-minded too. Not a slander. He's told not to be double-tongued. She can't be out there slandering. Because a lot of times, I, I guess, that the wives would accompany the deacons. You know, certainly if you're going to go to a widow's house or something, you don't want to go as a man alone. And any time there's a woman involved, you never want to go in as a man alone. You want to take your wife with you. And uh, so the wives were more, uh, their face was more evident to the congregations because they were, they were doing the work of, of, of going to the homes of church members and ministering. And so she had to be grave too, just like the deacon in verse 8. And she has to not be a slanderer, just like her husband's not to be double-tongued. Why? Because they can wreck the ministry. They can wreck the church. They can poison the people if they start saying bad things about the pastor or the church. And so they have to be very trusted people. 
uh, to go to church members' homes. Now keep in mind, too, that especially in Jerusalem, those people were so poor that other people scattered around the New Testament were taking up collections and sending the money to Jerusalem to help the poor saints. We're not like that. Okay, we, we don't have a church where we're rushing to people's houses because they're so poor they don't have food. But they did. They did. And so they were, they were out there all the time ministering and showing the love of God and showing that the church cares and taking care of them. And the husband and wife had to be a wonderful Christian team that was not tearing down the church or the leadership but lifting it up and ministering to them. So just try to picture that in your mind as you read this. And uh, these wives had to be sober. Now this word sober in verse 11 is completely different than the word sober in verse 2. Completely different Greek word. This one means in verse 11 she's not intoxicated. She's not intoxicated. You certainly don't want a drunk woman going around representing your church. <laughs> that's, that's not going to help. And... Uh, and then she has to be faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. And so it's a, it's a great office. Maybe we'll have a deacon someday or two. I, I've known, I know a couple churches around here that have a deacon. Um, but that is not a government position in the church where we rule the pastors. You know, we keep their hands tied and their feet tied and keep a chain on them so they don't go too fast or too far. No, you want the pastor to go as fast and as far as he can in this short life and do everything he can for the Lord. Well, uh, now they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased for themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Use your title. I, I, I use this sometimes when I'm saying to somebody, if you're going out soul winning, use your title in the church to give you boldness when you go out. Uh, for instance, if I was a Sunday school teacher in this church and I was knocking on doors or something, I'd say, hey, I noticed you got kids. I just want you to know I'm a Sunday school teacher at the Faith Bible Baptist Church in Eden. Or I'm a children's church worker at the Faith Bible Baptist Church in Eden or something like that. Use your title. It, it can help you have boldness. It can help you have boldness, you know. And um, whatever your title might be. If you have a title, use it. And uh, that, that title should be a good degree. If you have a title in the church, you should take it very seriously. But you should also use it to give you boldness in, in the faith. Um, I'm a trustee at the Faith Bible Baptist Church or whatever you might be. I'm the vice president of the corporation at the Faith Bible Baptist Church. And I was like, oh, somebody special is here from the church. Might, might give you boldness. Well, we got to go quickly here now, as always. These things write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Now, notice that that's what it's been about behavior. Last week we talked about prayer. The first order of business, we talked about women. Last week, their behavior, their outward adorning, modest apparel, inwardly, shamefacedness, and sobriety, and and uh, not all the braided hair and jewelry and all that kind of stuff. Women. And we went to bishops, how they're supposed to behave. And then we went to deacons and deacons' wives, how they're supposed to behave. How the children in the home are supposed to behave. And that's what he's saying here 
He's saying, I, I, I'm coming to you shortly, but if I tarry long, in other words, if I don't get there for a while, I just want you to know that uh, these things that I'm writing on to is that, that so you might organize the behavior of the congregation in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. This is a, another great uh, doctrinal verse on ecclesiology, the importance of the local church. And I'm preaching to the choir here because you're here, but if somebody's listening and you're not in a church, you need to be in a church. If you're listening live stream or sometime in the future, find a church, no matter how small it is or whatever, get in there and help it out. That's where God wants you to be. The house of God is a special place. It says the house of God, and by the way, it talks about the house of God 87 times in the Bible, the house of the Lord 213 times. You add that together, it's 300 times. It talks about the house of God in the Bible, a place where God's people meet together. They meet together and God is there. God is there. We've talked about where God dwells. Well, He's omnipresent. Yes, He is omnipresent. But He dwells in a house, the church. He dwells in heaven. And He dwells in you and me that are saved. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Even though He's omnipresent, He says, I specifically dwell. And it says right here, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the church. So a pillar and ground of the truth. So the church is the house of God. Okay, so the church, I always give these three definitions, alliterate. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, right? The two become one when you're married. The church is the building of Christ. 8688 South Main Street is the church. Right here. Okay, there's those three definitions of the word church. And notice how important it is. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. Ground being the foundation, pillars coming up. Everything else is built on the foundation and the pillars of the truth. The truth. What is truth? Well, Spurgeon has a note on the back which we won't look at, but the truth is three things. They're all found in the upper room. The upper room. When you go to the upper room discourse, the night before Christ was crucified, he said, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. There's truth in a book, the word of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's truth in a body. That's Jesus Christ. Which is what the next verse is going to conclude with in verse 16. Truth in a body. Number three, there's truth in a believer. That's the Holy Spirit. Four times in the upper room, Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. What is truth? The Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Word of God. Truth in a book, the Bible. Truth in a body, Jesus Christ. Truth in a believer, the Holy Spirit. The church is the pillar and ground of the church. Tr- pillar and ground of the truth. The church is a lot more important than we think it is. A lot more important than we think it is. Well, 
Then you come last of all tonight to the greatest verse I know of in all the Bible. It's my opinion. On the deity of Jesus Christ. You cannot read verse 16 without saying that's talking about Jesus Christ. It says, And great and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Without controversy. That means with the consent of all. Great is the mystery of godliness. Number one, God was manifest in the flesh. God, theos, Greek. Other perverted translations say him. Or he, he was manifest in the flesh. What does that mean? That could be me. Take those translations and burn them. That's what they did in Acts 19 with those books, Curious Arts. They're not the word of God. They're of the devil. God was manifest in the flesh. That's Bethlehem. Justified in the Spirit at His baptism. In all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it tells us the Holy Spirit came down upon Him at His baptism. And John the Baptist was told, when you see the Holy Spirit come down upon somebody, that's the one. That's the anointed. And at the same time, you heard a voice say, in audible words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Number one, he was manifest in the flesh, Bethlehem, justified in the spirit at his baptism. Seen of angels on the Mount of Temptation. After not eating for 40 days and 40 nights, angels came and saw him, ministered to him. And then at the end of his ministry in the Garden of Gethsemane, angels came and ministered to him. He was seen of angels. He was seen of angels. Those events are important. He was preached unto the Gentiles. Then... There were Gentile converts during his ministry and now. He was believed on in the world then, and he continues to be believed on in the world now, and he was received up into glory. You, you can't, nobody can say anything else about verse 16, but it's talking about Jesus Christ. He's God. Know that verse, memorize that verse, because we're among the few that believe in it. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. And um, so Jesus must be God. Well, that chapter is loaded with doctrine. It's all doctrine we need, um, especially as we go forward now uh, this year. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for Bible study tonight. Thank you for those that came out. Lord, feed our souls. Help us all to be on the right and same page. Help us to realize the difference between the office of the bishop and the deacons. To look at both the doctrinal and the historical uh, records that the deacons did not run the pastors. But they were wonderful, wonderful servants who ministered to the congregation and made a profound difference as they were helping needy people in the congregation, showing the love and the charity, the care of God. Lord, we thank you that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth and uh, what truth is and about Jesus, whom we worship as God in the flesh. And so bless these truths and this study as we go forward with it. And help us now with these prayer lists. Boy, they're so important, the things that are on there. 
Help us to be in prayer fervently for them. In Jesus' name, amen.